Hey Moth family, save the date for the Moth main stage on Saturday, February 27th at 7.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Join us and host Jonathan Ames for an evening of stories as five storytellers take the virtual stage and share a true personal tale from their life. Stories of glory and defeat, taunting fate, laughing in the face of danger, and the moments that forever changed the course. Buy tickets now at themoth.org slash virtual mainstage. Welcome to The Moth Podcast. I'm Dan Kennedy. This week, we have two stories about the jobs we have, the jobs we want, and also really the jobs we think we want. So we all have to find some kind of career, right? Or some kind of career has to find us one way or the other. The path is rarely straightforward, and it's not always without its bumps in the road. For instance, I seem to remember somehow landing a job as a wedding DJ, probably the worst wedding DJ. Number one, I don't think I believed in love. I was 23. I was really cynical. I never used the mic. I would just play music and sort of sit behind the equipment and just stare at people dancing and scowl. I did this for like a year. If you got married in Northern California in the 90s and any of this is ringing a bell, reach out to me because I feel like I owe you an amends of some sort. First up this week is Tim Lopez. Tim told this story in Brooklyn at a Moth Story Slam where the theme of the night was ambition. Here's Tim live at the Moth. Um, All right, so when I was 14, I read a book that changed my life. Um, That book was The Pelican Brief by John Grisham. Uh, For those of you that don't know, The Pelican Brief is a mass-market legal thriller uh, in which not just one, but two sitting Supreme Court justices are assassinated, and the mystery uh, as to who done it uh, falls upon the shoulders of a plucky law student named Darby Shaw, Uh, who spends roughly half the book uh, conducting uh, painstaking research in the library and the other half uh, on the run from this shadowy corporation that's behind everything and she kind of outsmarts them at every turn and eventually uh, exposes them and brings them down in the end using the titular brief. Uh, Now this book was in my 14-year-old wheelhouse, all right? I read it in like three hours. And then I proceeded to uh, tackle the entire Grisham oeuvre. And when I was done, Uh, I knew what I wanted to do with my life. I wanted to be a hotshot lawyer. Now, uh, I went to school in Los Angeles, and in Los Angeles we have something called magnet schools. And uh, magnet school is basically a high school with a theme. And these themes, you know, kind of range from the general, like the uh, math and science magnet or the performing arts magnet, to the oddly specific, uh, such as the North Hollywood zoology magnet. Uh, But for me, there was really only one choice, and that was the James Monroe Law and Government Magnet. Now, uh, Monroe had a uh, a specialized curriculum that included classes on constitutional law and criminal procedure and forensic science. For me, what was most important was it had a full-scale courtroom on campus where they conducted mock trials. So I was all in on the Monroe Law and Government Magnet. Now, the thing about me at the time is uh, I was not exactly a good student. Um, And in fact, throughout junior high school, I was known as something of an enfant terrible. Um, I was almost not allowed to graduate on stage due to poor performance, not academic, but more like it was like an attitude thing. Um, 
Uh, but, you know, I kind of ba barely turned it around at, at the end. And, you know, I was coming into high school with a whole new approach. And on the first day of high school, I showed up ready to make my mark on American jurisprudence. I showed up wearing a Chris Polo shirt tucked into jeans, uh, Argyle socks, and a brand new attache case that I purchased for the moment <laughs> just to let everybody know that I was serious. And for the first time in my academic career, uh, I came out swinging. I had done all the reading in advance, and uh, in the first week of class, my English teacher asked if anybody could name the nine justices on the current Supreme Court, and I raised my hand, and I named them all in reverse order of appointment. I was not fucking around. <laughs> so the... As much as I was focused in the classroom, where I really shined was in the courtroom. I was a really good fake lawyer. Um, I uh, developed a reputation as a brash and fearsome prosecutor. Um, I made the uh, varsity mock trial team as a sophomore, which was an unheard of feat in those days. And in my three years at Monroe, I compiled an undefeated record as a prosecutor. And look, I don't know if you know how hard it is to successfully prosecute a mock trial case, but you need to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. And there's reasonable doubt built into every mock trial case or else you couldn't have a mock trial case. That's why it's a mock trial. And yet, I achieved. And on the other hand, furthermore, I also developed uh, a reputation as this kind of like renegade prosecutor that would do whatever it took to win. And at the end of high school, I was voted two things. One was most likely to become attorney general. And two uh, was most likely to be held in contempt of court. After high school, my plan was pretty much set. I was going to go to UCLA, I was gonna be pre-law, and then I was gonna go to law school, probably Harvard, and you know, everything was pretty good to go. But I thought to myself, you know what, I'm gonna get a job at a law firm. I'm gonna, in the summer between my, you know, between high school and college, I'm gonna see what this is all about. This would be a good chance to um, see the law up close, maybe meet a mentor, someone who can kind of bring me up. And I got a job working for this white shoe firm in Century City, which is like a really nice slash douchey neighborhood of LA. And uh, I, I showed up on my first day of, of work, ready to, ready to go. And um, it was pretty apparent early on that my idea of what the law was and what actually being a lawyer was were vastly disparate things. <laughs> Nobody really had time to talk to me or mentor me or help me along or even care about me in any way, shape or form. And, you know, I, I pretty quickly came to understand that, you know, people really weren't very happy in this, in this environment. <laughs> and several people actually literally told me this. And, <laughs> you know, in my mind, all the skills that I had, everything I was good at, you know, like the drama and the performative elements and all the trial stuff, like, didn't matter at all. In fact, what I came to learn was that this particular firm, like, the actual skill was preventing things from going to trial. And people seemed to be that were good at it, were good at arguing, either on the phone or over email. And I thought to myself, you know, I like arguing, but like for fun. I don't really want to do this for a living. And by the end of the summer, I kind of became sort of disenchanted with, with the legal profession. And I started school, and I was pre-law, but it was kind of a soft pre-law. And <laughs> after that year, I, instead of getting a job at a law firm, I got a job at a restaurant. And at that point, my life path basically completely changed. And I look back now and I realize I didn't really want to be a lawyer. Like, I wanted to be a lawyer on TV. <laughs> and that dream is still very much alive. <laughs> Thank you very much. That was Tim Lopez. Tim is a storyteller and teaching artist from Los Angeles, currently based in Brooklyn. Tim's also a multiple-time Moth Story Slam winner, and he's an instructor in the Moth community and EDU programs. 
Our second story today comes from Kelly Craig, and we met Kelly in one of our community storytelling workshops when we partnered with Seattle University's Project on Family Homelessness. After the workshop, Kelly developed her story for a moth event on the theme of home, lost and found. Here's Kelly, live at the moth. I've spent a lot of time in public places with people who are drinking out of paper bags. Nineteen years ago, I got a job as a case manager with people who were living outside and struggling with addiction. I'd worked in drug and alcohol treatment for ten years, but this job was different. Instead of people coming in to see me, I went to them. And they didn't have to stop drinking or using in order to get services. This meant I spent a lot of hours trying to convince people who were intoxicated to go to appointments with me. I carried a cell phone and a backpack full of paperwork, and I walked a route where I knew each of my clients sat each day in the same spot, drinking. And I'd go find one, and they'd say, how'd you find me? (laughs) And I'd say, I'm here to take you to your appointment at the Social Security office. And they'd say, not today, I'll go tomorrow. I got into this work because I wanted to help people. And it seemed like the harder I tried, the more resistance I experienced. It was like a personal tug of war with 20 individual clients. And each night, I went home to a warm house and felt guilty about the people I knew who were sleeping out in the cold. One particular client I was very attached to and really concerned about was named Russell. Russell was 60 years old. He was Irish Cherokee, little guy, about my height, but rail thin. He had a grizzly beard, wore an army green trench coat, and a cap with bold letters that said, Korean War Vet, because he was. And Russell sat on the same bench in Steinbrook Park every day, drinking wine and telling stories. And I'd go find Russell and tell him about some appointment, and he'd launch into a story. I'd say, Russell, let's go to the clinic today. And he'd say, did you know I wrote a letter to John John and Caroline when President Kennedy was killed? And I'd say, Russell, your cough is getting worse. Let's go into the clinic. And he'd say, did I tell you about the time I worked for that movie star on a ranch in California and how I rode the rails up to Seattle? One day, everything came together and there was an apartment ready for Russell. All he had to do was go meet with the landlord. So I went to his bench and I let him know his apartment was ready. 
and Russell would not budge. In my exasperation, I said, Russell, I'm worried about you. And he said, we worry about you too, Kel. I walked away, but his words rang in my head. And they took me back 15 years because people had said that to me. I was in college, drinking heavily, acting recklessly, writing suicidal letters to a friend back home who, in her desperation to try to help, went to our high school soccer coach. And a few months later, I was back in Seattle, and that coach put an AA pamphlet under my door with a note on it that said, I care. People had tried to get me to stop drinking before, but something about the way she did that really left me room to make that decision on my own terms. And when I was ready, I went to her for help. I thought about Russell, and I thought about me, and I realized in my darkest times, when I was most in need, what made the difference was another human being making a connection spending time with me as is, without telling me what they thought I should do. The next time I found Russell on his bench, it went like this. Hey Russell, I'm so glad to see you today. There are some things we could do together when you're ready, but first, I'm hoping you can tell me about going fishing under that blue, blue bridge. That was Kelly Craig. Kelly grew up listening to her grandparents' stories. She started working with people experiencing addiction in 1985, and her life has been deeply affected by the people she's met through this work. Kelly says she's grateful for each connection made through sharing life stories. That's all for us this week here at The Moth. Hey, it's not too late to set a New Year's resolution. And I hope that one of yours will be to come out and join us at a Moth live show. Whether you're putting your name in the hat for a chance to get on stage and tell a story, or just showing up to enjoy the night from the audience. The Moth produces over 600 shows a year, so come out and see us. You can find our event schedule on our website, themoth.org. Until next time, from all of us here at The Moth, we hope you have a story-worthy week. Dan Kennedy is the author of Loser Goes First, Rock On, and American Spirit. He's also a regular host and storyteller with The Moth. Podcast production by Julia Purcell. The Moth Podcast is presented by PRX, the public radio exchange, helping make public radio more public at prx.org. Moth Story Slams are back. 
Held on Mondays beginning in February, join us for our weekly Open Mic Story Slam competition. February's theme is Love Hurts. Throw your name in the hat for a chance to tell your story or just come to listen to stories of a total eclipse of the heart, kicked to the curb by the people or places or things you love or used to love. Visit themoth.org slash events to buy tickets now. That's themoth.org slash events.